How many of you are ready to get into the book of Acts tonight? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your blessing. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you that you've given us this word in the book of Acts so that, Lord, our faith will be built, so we will be inspired, so we will see the power that was moving in the early church and can move in our church and in our time. So, Lord, speak to us tonight. Will you just breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. We got a lot to cover tonight, so let's get right into it. We are going to finish up real quickly uh, Acts 15, and tonight I'm going to do Acts 16 and 17. And uh, we're going to start doing two two chapters a week. We're going to do it, and it's going to be really, really good. I'm getting so much out of this just studying it, let me, let me promise you. Now, last time, we looked at how the apostles arrived at knowing the will of God. You remember that? In order to solve the issue of Judaizing. And remember, Juda- Judaizing or Judaizers brought the false teaching that we must mix obedience to the law of Moses with faith in Jesus in order to be saved. In other words, you can't be saved by faith alone, but it's faith in works. And this drove Paul nuts because his whole message was, it's by grace you are saved through faith, period. Doesn't take works. So we also saw that the apostles knew that they had settled on the will of God in this matter when they experienced three things. And these are the things we need to look for when we are also asking God to reveal his will. They had the Spirit's peace the confirming witness of mature believers, and the witness of the word. The Spirit of God will never, never, ever, ever, never lead you to go against the word. And we're going to see later on in this message um, tonight that when the Spirit takes his peace away, you may not even understand why, but you need to trust the Holy Ghost on the inside. He knows some things that maybe you don't. So if he takes his peace away, you hold back. If he gives you his great peace about something, that's one of the ways you can be confident that you're moving in God's will. Now, next, Paul is ready to hit the road again. Verse 36 in chapter 15. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. So every city they went into during the first missionary journey, Paul now wants to go back and see how they're doing. I like that idea. Too many times we get people saved in churches and we never contact them again. Paul wants to go back and check on them. So let me just point out here also that Paul is just tireless. He's tireless. After all they had just accomplished, he soon wants to hit the preaching trail again. The guy just couldn't be stopped. He was just a spiritual steamroller. Amen? And he inspires me. Now, i got to tell you, I'm biased a little bit towards Paul. I believe that Paul was the greatest Christian in the history of the world. I don't think you can find a better Christian than Paul. Now, verse 37. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now we're about to have an argument between two great men of God. Aren't you glad the Bible tells us the truth? Watch this. Verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp 
that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, why in the world do they have a fight like this? Because can you imagine Paul and Barnabas having a blowout? They had a blowout. They did. Now, here's the issue. The issue is that John Mark, who, remember, wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Paul's rejection of him as missions material. Now, taking you back to Acts 13, two chapters ago, you remember the account we read of John Mark bailing out of the first missionary journey. Let's read it. Chapter 13, 13. Then Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Y'all need to give me a gold star for these words. <laughs> now, but look what it says. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Everybody say he bailed. Amen. Now, we don't know why he bailed, but we do know it did not make Paul's day. It did not impress him. And he decided right then and there, the Apostle Paul, that Mark was not cut out for missions. Right then and there. And when Barnabas wanted to take Mark on this next trip, Paul emphatically said, no. Now, let me talk to you about type A personalities for a minute. How many of you know a type A? How many of you are a type A? And you're probably going to get mad at me when I read this. <laughs> but when you have a type A, highly driven personality like Paul, your weakness tends to be expecting everybody else to be just like you. Listen to all these type A's saying Amen. Those who are type A's and those who live with type A's. And they have little mercy on those who aren't like them. The hard thing is if you ever work for a type A. If that's ever your job, your employment. If you are in an employment situation under a type A, my prayers and grace and blessings go out to you tonight. But here's the deal. Paul was a type A, highly driven personality, but Barnabas' personality was one of mercy. Mercy. Mark deserved a second chance in his eyes. And the two men clashed and unfortunately parted ways. Now, if I'm looking for a friend, I pick Barnabas. Because I want a friend who will cut me some slack. Uh, Paul, well, let's just leave Paul alone. He's the best Christian that ever lived. But the territory of the first mission trip was now divided between these two men. Uh, Barnabas picked up Mark and went to Cyprus. Paul went north to Galatia with a new traveling companion, Silas. Now, let me give you a little something for the record. Later on in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, we see, and we're so glad to see it, that he and John Mark have been thoroughly restored. Listen to what Paul writes. Only Luke is with me. Isn't that sad? Everybody stop a minute and think with me. Here's the great preacher, apostle, missionary, Paul. He's reached tens, hundreds of thousands of people with the gospel. But at the end of his life, only Luke is with me. I don't know about you, but that strikes me. He said, look at this, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. 
So everybody say restored. restored. Now there's a little lesson we can pull from this, that even with a harsh parting of ways, and you will have them in life, harsh parting of ways, but there can be healing and restoration in Jesus. Amen? Because these two men, somewhere along the way, got restored. Now, as we come to chapter 16, the highlight of this chapter is Paul meeting Timothy. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, that is Paul, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So you had a Jewish mama and a Gentile daddy. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, here's the background. Timothy and his mother had been converted when Paul and Barnabas pioneered the work in the area in the first missionary journey. When Paul was preaching the first missionary journey, Timothy and his mother heard the gospel through Paul and came to Jesus Christ. And while they were away, as Paul moved on, and there's been a time gap now, Timothy made a great spiritual progress. He has really grown in God. And so Timothy would become uh, known as Paul's dear son in the faith. You're going to hear Paul over and over in his writings talking about his precious son, his dear son, Timothy, in the faith. I have sons in the faith. I'm old enough now I can say that. I have sons in the faith. I have a lot of sons in the faith. They come out of nowhere. I come across people that I ministered to years ago that came to Christ under my ministry. I'm giving God the glory here. But I've got a lot of people walking around who are sons and daughters in the faith. But Timothy was, we could say, Paul's top son, his, his, his precious, closest son in the faith. And he remained in a relationship with him to the end. I think one of the most haunting verses in the New Testament is found in 2 Timothy 4.21. It's the end of Paul's life. Chapter 4 is the last chapter he would ever write. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's soon going to be martyred by being beheaded. And he requests Timothy, listen to these words, come before winter. Meaning, get here while you can, Timothy. Come quickly because winter may stop you. Those little three words have always reached out and grabbed me by the throat. Come before winter. Because it's all about opportunity and lost opportunity. The message for us is to seize opportunity while opportunity is there. For it may not be there tomorrow. The opportunity of today can be the lost opportunity of tomorrow. If you don't learn to notice when God has brought something to your front door. You got to know when he brings something to your front door and knocks on that door and say, oh, this is the Lord and grab it while the grabbing is good. Because if you don't seize it, the Lord may walk down the street a little bit and knock on your neighbor's door with your opportunity. Oh, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. There is a pathos in these words. Timothy, winter's coming. Winter's coming. Winter is whenever the opportunity you had is no longer accessible. That's winter. That's why I tell you all the time, tell your loved one you love them. Tell your spouse you love them. 
Tell your children you love them. Never would I have believed if you had told me a year ago that I would be here single and Kathy would be in heaven. Never. But I've learned this. When God puts things in your life, maximize it. And, and, and hold tight who God brings your way and what God brings your way. My number one prayer every day, Lord, be Lord of who comes into my life and who goes out. And be Lord of what comes in and what goes out. And help me to notice the difference. Okay. I'm telling you. Our God's a God of opportunity. And so he says, Timothy, winter's on the way. Come before winter so that winter doesn't stop you because, Timothy, I'm not long for this life. He wanted to see his spiritual son one last time before his death. Now let's go back to Acts 16. That's free, what I just gave you. Paul decides to take Timothy with them on the journey. So verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees that they had decided on in Acts 15 to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. The decrees were their, what their final decision had been on this whole issue of Judaizing, that you didn't need any works to get you saved. So the churches were strengthened, verse 5, in the faith when they heard what the elders had decided. And they increased in number annually. Oops, I didn't read that right, did I? They increased in number monthly. I'm sorry, I keep missing it. What does it say? Daily. Daily. Think about this, everybody. Every day people were being saved. Every day. Now here we see the incredible growth of the early church. They grew exponentially in numbers. Daily people were being saved. And it wasn't just the apostles out preaching. It was the people, what we would call the laity, were out there preaching, teaching, winning people to Jesus. And I'm looking forward to the Sunday when I give the invitation for souls and some of you bring somebody down who you want to Jesus and say, this week I was in such and such a place and I met this person and I won them to Jesus and I brought them to church today. That'll, that'll, that'll... Hey, I might do a run around the sanctuary one time when that happens. Amen? Now, next we discover another example of never going where the Holy Spirit lifts his peace. Look what happens in verse 6. These passages amaze me. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden, notice that word, by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Wait a minute, the Holy Spirit is forbidding them to preach? Yes. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them then either. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now notice with me, twice the Spirit of God forbade them from preaching in a particular area. Notice, The Holy Spirit was Lord and guide over their ministry, not them. He knew where they were going and stopped them in their tracks 
when they miss God's direction. I'm so thankful for the Holy Ghost. I can't tell you how many times the Holy Ghost has checked me from going in one direction and led me with peace to go in another direction. And, and here's the deal. Good is not as good as best. And best is what the Spirit of God leads you to do. There's a lot of good things you can do, but there's one best thing you can do, and that's whatever the Spirit of God is telling you to do. They were wanting to do a good thing, preach the gospel. You can't say that was bad, but it wasn't best because it's not where the Holy Ghost was aiming them. You know, every one of you are aimed by the Holy Spirit in a certain direction. I'm aimed, and I got a bullseye I'm shooting for. I'm God's arrow, and I'm flying towards the bullseye. And he has shot me this direction. And a couple of years ago, he put us on radio all over the United States of America and, and shot us everywhere. And do you know that tomorrow... There is a pastor from Indiana coming here who's been listening to us on radio and wants to meet me. He came, he's here to meet me from Indiana because of radio. But see, see, you're as a believer, you're an aimed vessel. And if you start getting off course, the Holy Ghost is going to check you, forbid you. And that, that gives me a security. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. Are you, you know, can we just thank God for the Holy Spirit for a minute? Lord, thank you for the Holy Ghost of God who leads us and guides us and is Lord over our ministry and has aimed us all in a direction to the glory of God in Jesus' name. So even a good thing, preaching is wrong if the Spirit of God checks you. Now, next, God's direction breaks through after some pretty serious frustration. I don't know about them, but if I'm checked twice and I'm trying to preach, I'm frustrated. What am I supposed to do? What do you want me to do? And look at verse 9. God broke through, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And now after he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now here's the principle. When God shuts one door, he opens a better one. I want you to say that with me. When God shuts one door, he opens a better one. Because what we're about to see break loose in the city of Philippi outdoes anything they would have seen if they had gone into the other places they tried to preach and were stopped. The Lord knew what he was doing. So look at verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. That's my best attempt. (laughs) And the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, on church day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and we spoke to some women who met there. Everywhere Paul went, he witnessed. Everywhere he went, he witnessed. And a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Now, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord, say with me, the Lord opened her heart. See, when you believe, the Lord has opened your heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, 
If you've judged me to be faithful in the Lord, uh, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And so here's Paul witnessing at the river, group of women gathered, and at least one heart was open that day, Lydia's heart. Now, Lydia was a businesswoman, and she sold purple garments and had been very successful at it. This woman was making money. And she was captivated by Paul's message and begged them to stay. So God's starting to move. And he began with getting women saved. I'm just going to leave that alone. You can do what you want with it. He began by getting women saved. But as usual, when the gospel gains traction, the devil attacks every time. Now look what happened. This is really sinister. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now notice the Bible says demon possessed. Now I got a question for you. You can go to some churches these days and they will tell you, well, that was in the first century. That doesn't happen anymore. Now we're dealing in, with psychology. Now nothing wrong with psychology per se, but here's the deal. If you don't think this happens anymore, where'd the devil go? So there has to still be demon-possessed people. Now, I know there are. If you've ever had the, un- I, I say unfortunate. I, let me put it this, if you've ever had the uncomfortable experience of encountering a demon spirit in another person and casting it out, um, it, is, it is not something you want to make your living at. Amen. You feel dirty. I, you feel like you need to go take a shower. They are unclean spirits for a reason. Amen. And this little girl here, was demon-possessed. She moved in the supernatural, but it wasn't of God. Do you think we're seeing some of that today in our America? People moving in a supernatural anointing, but it's not of God. The, the, Greek, spirit, the, the Greek phrase here, a spirit of divination, is very revealing. It literally means python. A python. The, the word divination comes from a Greek word translated python. This girl, we could say, was a pythoness. Seriously. A diviner. What does a python do? It constricts you. It takes the life out of you. It holds you. She was under the control of the demon Apollo. There was a shrine in Delphi in central Greece. Delphi is Pytho, literally dedicated to this false god. And somewhere along the way, this girl got demon-possessed. The demon took control of her and began to use her, and as she was a slave. And her owners began to make money off of her. And I submit to you again, we're seeing that today in America. Amen. People making money off of demon-possessed people. Yes. I'm going to go a little bit further and say that some of the entertainment industry is literally demon-possessed. Yes. And there are people making money off of them. And in a time the church woke up and said, hey, this is not God. Just because you've got a talent doesn't mean that you're moving in the spirit of God. 
Some of these singers, I could name names. Well, I'm not going to name names, but I could name some names. When they get up, there is a spirit working through them. I can feel it. I can discern it. And, and, and there have been a couple of times I've gotten the chills watching them. Can I go a little further and say a couple of Super Bowl appearances have done that for me? I'm not talking about Brady either. I'm talking about the halftime entertainment. I've seen some of that halftime entertainment. In my opinion, there was, a, there was a spirit at work. Let me just go a little further and then leave this alone. I believe in many ways America is bewitched. This poor demon-possessed girl was able to make demonically inspired utterances in fortune-telling, which brought her owners uh, lots of money. Now, here she is. She's telling fortunes. Now, don't, don't think that because somebody's got some tarot cards, it's all a big joke. There are times when people who use tarot cards or Ouija boards, that it ceases to become fun and games, and a spirit actually steps in. And you, the recipient of the fortune telling or of the Ouija game, can get a demonic influence on your life. That's why I think you ought to be careful what you let in your house. Ouija boards, tarot cards, anything occultic. I would clean that stuff out, throw it in the fireplace, burn it. There's even some past music in your house. Oh, man, I didn't mean to go here tonight. But there's some music in your house that comes from your yesteryear days, your without Christ days, that seriously, there's something on that music. Now, I'm going to leave it alone. Now, I'm done. We got to be smarter. Because Paul was, look what happened. This girl followed Paul and us, verse 17, and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Well, what's wrong with that? I ask you. Well, Paul discerned a demon spirit, though what she was saying was not necessarily objectionable. Paul, greatly annoyed. Your King James Bible will say vexed. I prefer that over annoyed because it's deeper than annoyance. He was vexed. Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. The name of Jesus was mightier than this demon spirit who Paul refused to accommodate. Paul refused to make room for anything evil. And this deliverance stirred up a hornet's nest. Look what happened. It's about to get fun. Verse 19, when our masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace of the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for, for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, can you imagine the pain of that? They threw them into prison, 
and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, that jailer put them into the inner prison and put their feet in the stocks. Let me translate that for you. They're in maximum security prison, first century, for setting somebody free. But look at their incredible response of faith. I love this. Verse 25. You've got to read this with me. Are you ready? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Why didn't it say they were calling their attorneys? Why didn't it say they were screaming discrimination? Why doesn't it say that they're griping and complaining and slipping into depression and need a sedative? Uh-uh. What does it say they turn to? Let's read it. Praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now get this. Their legs were cramped. They're in the stocks. Their legs were cramped. Their backs are on fire from the whipping they've received. Yet they praised God anyway, and the prisoners took note. Let me give you something to take home with you. Anytime you praise God in your midnight hour of trouble and trial, the prisoners of sin all around you are all ears. Because that's when they know whether or not what you've been telling them about is real enough to carry you through trouble. Look at God's response. I love the way God responds. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. The Greek is this, seismos megas. An earthquake great. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open. And everybody's chains were loose. Sounds like God to me. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he knew if I don't kill myself, the Romans are going to do it. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Notice, Paul did not run. Then he called for a light, ran in. He's got a lantern in his hand. He runs in. Paul is sitting there still in the jail. All the doors are open. He hadn't run. He's still there. He brings in this lantern. I'm sure the lantern's shaking. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, the only logical thing you can say, let's read it together. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now the tables are totally turned in a flash. The imprisoned have been set free, and the prison guard is under deep conviction. Now here's the principle. Praise is a powerful weapon in our spiritual warfare ammunition. They were praising God, just praising God. And God said, I can't take it. There's my kids down there praising me in the middle of a prison cell. I can't take it. They didn't do anything wrong. They're in there for no good reason. I can't take it. And he sent that earthquake. Verse 31, so they said to the prison guard, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Paul, you could not stop this man, Paul. Here he is, his back's on fire, his legs are cramped. He's just been in the middle of a huge earthquake. But but as soon as these people get saved, he's headed for the water to baptize them. I'm sorry, if it's me, I'm not thinking about baptizing until the next Sunday. 
But he said, let's go. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, that is, Paul and Silas, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. There couldn't be a more dramatic turn of events than what has happened here. Not only has God set them free, but the jailkeeper's whole household has been born again. And when it was day, here comes the magistrates who threw them in illegally. He sent the officer saying, go let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly. They have uh, uncondemned Romans. We are Roman citizens. They didn't have any legal right. And they have thrown us into prison. And now they want to put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and ask us to leave. I love this man, Paul. He was solid steel, wasn't he? Now the shoes on the other foot. Can you picture these magistrates who just the day before had said, throw them into prison, throw them into the stocks, whip them. Now they're crawling on hands and knees. Look what it says. It says, the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid. Then they came and pleaded. That's begged. Paul, please, please leave. And brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So Paul said, that's what I wanted to hear. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, where it had all begun. And when they had seen the brethren, they, what, everybody, encouraged them. It takes a great faith to go through something like this and still be an encourager. Amen. They encouraged them and departed. So with parting words and exhortations, the three missionaries, Paul, Silas and Timothy strike out in a westerly direction. Now we're coming to chapter 17. Everybody good? All right, let's do one more chapter. I don't know about you, but I'm being blessed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Everybody say the apostles went to church. Even when they were traveling, they went to church. That's free too. Now, you're the choir. I'm talking to the choir. But maybe some of you watching by streaming haven't been to church in a while. The apostles went to church. Everywhere they went, they still went to church. Now, Look what he said to them, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. You know, it was always Paul's way to go for the jugular by going into the Jewish synagogues in every city first. That's the first place he went. He almost always won some of them to Christ. And as usual, the unbelieving Jews, the one that didn't accept his message, came against him because of the old culprit, envy. Look at verse 5. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Everybody say there's evil men. You know what gets me is our culture has such a hard time embracing the reality of evil. Yeah. 
They say, now, I mean, I've even heard pastors go on and on about now, now dealing with the problem of evil. And how do we know evil when we see it? Hey, dude, I know evil when I see it. All right? I know evil when I see it. There were evil men in this city. And the Bible had no problem calling them evil. Now, they grabbed these evil men and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. Be careful who you let into your house because Jason just let the apostles in and he got in all kinds of trouble. But it was good trouble. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Oh, that the American church could again be described as those who have turned the world upside down. That's how they were known. Paul and his team were known as those who had turned the whole world upside down. And notice also how easily an ignorant mob was stirred up if you just found the right evil people to do it. Now, let me just meddle again for a minute. Aren't we seeing the same thing today with evil mobs uh, on college campuses just this week? Ann Coulter, a conservative commentator and an author, um, I don't know where her Christianity is. I know she goes to a Catholic church, I believe, but she's a conservative commentator. She was going to speak at the college at Berkeley, Berkeley University. Or Anyway, a mob was stirred up because they now no longer want opposing views being voiced in major liberal colleges. They will actually stop you from coming. And the mob became so threatening and so vicious that she had to cancel because she even lost her support. Now, when a mob becomes violent and threatening and sheds blood and turns to that kind of intimidation. I'm sorry. Nobody needs to tell me what evil looks like. That's evil. And people yielding to that, in my opinion, are at least at that moment being evil. So this kind of mob thing is happening in our day, just like it did then. And verse 10 says, the brethren immediately, because the mob was stirred up, They sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, lest they be killed. And when they arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. There goes Paul again, right into the synagogue. And these were more fair-minded men than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with readiness. I love that. They received the word with readiness. And searched the scriptures, how often? Daily. To find out whether these things were so, that Paul and his team were telling them. When you hear somebody today say, you know, we need to be more like the Bereans. They mean this. Christians need to check out. 
what Bible teachers on television, on radio, from pulpits, in books, are saying by searching the word to see if it's balanced and true what they have been taught. Now, if somebody were to ask me, Jeff, what's the greatest deficit in the modern Western church? I would tell you immediately, discernment. That's the greatest deficit. We believe anything. If somebody has charisma, if they look good, if they have a talent and can sing like a canary, if they come over good on television or simply call themselves Christian, or if they're good speakers, persuasive, likable, lovable, we just go, well, they have to be from God. But we've got to get to the place where you listen to what they say, not just how they say it. And check it out. I could really go off on this one. Because there's so much out there that didn't sound. I mean, it's just not sound. It's not balanced. But I, I hear Christians, ooh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I said, what are you hallelujahing about? Because, you know, they just said it was such finesse and they, they are clearly so anointed. Well, you know what? What moves me is accuracy. What moves me is soundness. What moves me is if I see it in the Bible, the way they said it. But if I don't see in the Bible, I don't care what you look like, what you sound like, how much money you've got, how successful, how many people you've got. Because we're living in a, a, a gullible, easily persuaded, easily convinced society. The thing some people believe, it just blows my mind. But look at verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews, here they come again, from Thessalonica, learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred the crowds, stirred up the crowds. There goes that mob again. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. So now Paul has gone from Berea to Athens. And verse 16, look what happened to Paul. While Paul waited for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Now, we just read where his spirit got vexed. Now his spirit is provoked. Can we say here, folks, we're seeing a spirit-led man? His spirit is vexed. His spirit is provoked. Vexed means, oh, my gosh, I, this is really just grieving me. But provoked means righteous anger. When he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, this provoked spirit of Paul's is something every Christian should be experiencing when we look at much of what's happening in America today. I'm provoked all the time. I wish I weren't. I probably read too much news. But I'm provoked all the time. I, I, I think, I, I like, I believe I'm experiencing some righteous anger. And I know I experience some Holy Ghost vexing where I'm deeply grieved over where our culture has gone. Because here's the deal. 
Now, some good things are happening, but it's still a nation steeped in moral perversion. And it's still a nation that kills its babies with impunity. And it still publicly rejects God and Christ and the word. Now, when I see those things, I'm provoked. What about you? You ever get provoked? Do you ever just say, man, that just makes me righteously angry. What's done to those poor little babies? Breaks my heart. It provokes me. It makes me angry. But Paul didn't just get provoked. He was moved to action. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, sounds intelligent, doesn't it? Epicurean. And Stoic philosophers, what do you do? I'm an Epicurean philosopher. That just rolls off the tongue. Some said, of these philosophers said, what does this babbler want to say? Of course, Paul was more brilliant than any of them put together. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, look at what verse 21 tells us they gave their life to do, spent their time doing. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I like the old thing. I like the old way that leads to life. Now, just so you'll know, the Areopagus was the hill of the Greek god Mars. Paul was in as much peril here as he had been in any other place in which he had been attacked. It was the place where intellectuals gathered who were sneering at Paul saying he's a proclaimer of foreign gods. And you know what the word is they use for gods? Daimonion, translated devil or demons. So this was their contemptuous estimate of Jesus Christ, that he was a demon. And Paul Paul boldly stands for Christ and answers them. Let me zip through what he said to them. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. But for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Can you imagine having a church to the unknown God? Who are we going to worship? We're going to worship the unknown God. Well, I could get into that one. Unknown to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I'm proclaiming to you. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation. Everybody say, we're of one blood. Black, white, yellow, red, brown. I don't care what color your skin is. You got red blood. So we're all one by by blood. Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That's the sovereignty of God. 
so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Read verse 28 with me. I love this. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, King James says, blinked at. But now commands all men everywhere to what, everybody? Repent. Why? Verse 31. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, let me just stop right here and make one brief comment. Do you notice anything different about Paul's message here? Is something missing that's usually there? Let me tell you what's missing. Not one time did he use the name Jesus. And you know what? He has the least harvest of any message we ever see Paul preaching. His smallest harvest was this one. And this is the only one he didn't use the name of Jesus. He called him the man. I've learned a long time ago, when I preach, always preach the name of Jesus. Get Jesus in there. Get the gospel in there. It said of the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon, no matter what he preached, no matter what the topic, he always made a beeline for the cross and preached Jesus and him crucified sometime during his message. Paul didn't say the name of Jesus. Now, who am I to judge Paul? I'm only pointing this out because we're looking back in history now. And we can see, hey, I got to say I noticed this. Paul closes out his message with the heart and soul of the Christian message, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but he didn't say the name of Jesus. Now let's stand together and we're going to read the last two verses together. You ready? Can you read it with me? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Now, I'll read the last one. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined with him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them, but it was a small harvest. It was a few. And other times we see Paul preaching to a crowd. There were many more. So the lesson is, whenever you talk to somebody about the gospel, when you say that name, It's powerful. Can we lift our hands to that mighty name of Jesus? Lord, thank you for this incredible account from the book of Acts, all that we have learned tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to follow these great men and their journeys. Thank you, Lord, for letting us see the way the Holy Ghost was sovereign over their ministry and stopped them and gave them peace and took his peace away guiding them along the way. And Lord, let our ministries be the same. Led by the Holy Ghost, sanctioned by the Holy Ghost. Oh, I just sense the Holy Spirit here right now. I sense the Holy Spirit here right now. 
Can we just drink in his presence for a minute?